6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 40 and 41. Well, we're studying the book of Job, and tonight we're in one of the most fun sections of this book. We'll be wrapping up the entire study next session. Next session will be the final and concluding session where we will have, we will review the book, but we'll with a lot of surprises, because most people believe that the book is all about, you know, why do the innocent suffer? And you'll be surprised to discover that God never deals with that. Not, at least not directly. And as you all know, Job has been put through a real tough time. He's lost all his possessions, his family. He's, uh, he's, uh, then also lost his health. And all because uh, Satan's trying to get him to lose his faith. And then Satan's most disturbing attack of all are these, are his comforters. These three guys that I like to call the ash heap trio. Because there is there to comfort him, and all they do is make matters worse with all their arguments. And what makes that section so provocative is you can't find fault with the arguments they're using. They're just misapplied. Not They don't pray for him. They're not applied in love. And we could go, we could dissect that, but we won't bother here. We'll... Then we have this fourth guy show up, this young guy, Elihu, a spirit-filled young man who really is the bridge, in a sense, between these so-called comforters, and God himself. And in the last session is when God himself steps in. We're through with all those discourses. The bulk of the book, of course, are all these poetical discourses. But, but God steps in and uh, <laughs> puts down the three comforters. That's why I'm so confident in taking that view. He doesn't t- put down Elihu, this young man, who is speaking by the Spirit of God, I believe, and preparing the way. But God, out of a whirlwind... That's such an easy phrase, but there is a huge storm and lightning and clouds and whatever where God himself calls them all to task. And he responds to Job by giving him a science quiz. And in chapters uh, you know, 38 and 39, we had this fascinating tour de force through the discoveries of science. And it's astonishing to add up the insights that we have since discovered in science that are hinted at in those 84 questions that uh, God asks. But in this discourse, he talks about 10 animals. Actually, 12. We're going to get the last two. But we've we've gone through, uh, in various ways, the 10 animals last time. But uh, in the session we're getting into tonight, he is going to talk about two animals that are also a subject of great mystery to many, many commentators on the Bible. What's provocative about these is not just the fact that these are kind of strange creatures, apparently, that God's talking about. But there are 44 verses devoted to these two animals, more than all the other animals put together. 
So we've got sort of at least a double mystery here. The first mystery, what on earth is God talking about? Tangibly, that is. The second mystery is, why are these animals that important? And I'm going to just, you know, plant the seed already that there may be more at issue here than just the physical characteristics of these animals. So let's turn on our receivers and be sensitive to some of this. So we're going to address some interesting questions. When were the dinosaurs on the earth? What's the, first of all, it's fascinating. That's why this is a fun chapter because there's somehow all of us, especially kids too, but all of us get fascinated with dinosaurs. I'm using that term in the broad collective sense, the whole collection of these prehistoric creatures. We see them in museums and we have all this nonsense being promoted about them. They lived millions and millions and millions of years ago. That's utter rubbish. That's utter nonsense. It's unscientific. It's certainly not a scientific fact. It's an opinion by some. But uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll touch upon that as we go. But set that aside, when were they on the earth? They were in Noah's Ark. The big ones? No, no. He's not stupid. <laughs> Babies. Little ones. But still, they're on the ark. How do I know? Because they're still around today. That may surprise you. What's the basis for all these myths and legends of dragons throughout the history of man? Very prominent, of course, in Asia with China and so forth. Also throughout Europe. You can't pick up a piece of literature that somewhere in there there isn't discussion of dragons where someone killed a dragon. It may be in mythology and so forth, but they're all over the place. What's the basis for those? And whatever happened to them, they're all gone. Most of them are. It may surprise you, there's still some around. They have pictures of them. See, dinosaurs did not become extinct millions of years ago. They are mentioned in the Bible. Some of them were alive after the flood of Noah. In fact, they are mentioned here in the book of Job. One reason so many commentators are so mixed up, they try to make them... Uh, well, the, the uh, 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 hippopotamus or an elephant and all that, it doesn't fit the text at all, but that's all they know about. It never occurred to them that God is talking about real animals that just aren't around anymore, at least not very prevalently. Okay. So anyway, let's back up a bit. We're going to be in chapter 4. Let's, let's get a review here. You know, it's interesting that one of the things about the book of Job is that life itself has a way of overturning some of our convictions of our youth. Carl Jung, the famous Austrian psychologist, put it this way. In the second half of life, the necessity is imposed of recognizing no longer the validity of our former ideals, but of their contraries. Of perceiving the error in what was previously our conviction, of sensing the untruth in what was our truth, of weighing the degree of opposition, even hostility, of what we took to be love. And that's what God is teaching Job right now through this whole exercise. Helping him to see that his righteousness was an external matter only, and that internally there was a deep and serious problem. That's what's surfacing in Job. God is using this whole experience. It's far more than just a challenge of Satan to teach Job, to bring, out, to bring insight, intimacy to Job. 
And, and he begins, he began his whole discourse here by revealing his creative wisdom in everything that he made and in the manifold forces of nature. And uh, so he subjected Job to a penetrating examination of natural subjects. So in chapter 40, I'm just going to take a few verses to review where we finished last time. Chapter, Job chapter 40, starting verse 1, Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. In other words, <laughs> who are we to instruct God? That's in effect what Job was in the position of do, trying to do. Verse 3, And Job answered to the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job came to the end of the first session with his hand on his mouth. He was silenced, but he wasn't convinced. So God now is going to take up the argument again, and he brings up another matter to Job. Verse 6, Then answered the Lord unto Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Gird up thy loins now like a man, and I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. You see the challenge there. God is saying, again, once again, the same way he did before, telling Job, get ready, we're, we're, we're at a confrontation here. Verse 8, Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? In other words, God is asking Job, can you handle moral government of, on the earth? See, Job has already admitted that he is not in God's league when it comes to understanding the world of nature or caring for the animals. That was the big subject in the last time. And uh, that's where he'd been charging, impl implicitly charging God with a fault. Now, in this next session, God's going to invite Job, in a sense, rhetorically speaking, to be on the throne of God and see what he would do with the problems that God deals with continually. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? I never thought something like this in the Bible until you realize what God is really saying here. Verse 9, God says to Job, Hast thou an arm like God? Canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto thee that thy own right hand can save you. And so pride is the real issue that's lurking here. And uh, so pride, this is already a hint that the real area that's going to start surfacing here is in, as a forthcoming subject, is pride. Not simply the specific animals that he's now about to address. And so God's now going to bring before Job in the discussion two absolutely amazing creatures, a land animal and a sea animal. The first one's a land animal, but he's the ultimate land animal. He's the ultimate land animal. And the second one will be the ultimate sea creature. And we don't recognize him at first because <laughs> this goes back a bit. Now, this is the oldest book in the Bible. That surprises many people. The oldest book of the Bible is not the book of Genesis. The books of Moses, the five books of Moses were written by Moses. He came later. Job was probably about the time of Abraham. So it's the earliest book of the Bible. And it deals with these several unusual creatures. And in the passage, as I point out, there's a dozen animals that we've talked about there's more space to these two than all the rest of them together, about 44 verses. And one of the questions we have to put in our notes in the back of our mind, why? Why are these so important? 
Now, the first of these is called a behemoth. That's actually a plural in the Hebrew, meaning beasts, plural. But uh, we'll discover as we look at the behemoth that he is extremely powerful. He's the largest of all the land animals, and he was impossible to capture. Right away you start, well, gee, who could that be? That's why so many people, well, it must be obviously an elephant. Except he's got a tail like cedars. Have you ever looked at the tail of an elephant? It ain't much. <laughs> okay. Both of these animals are highly feared creatures. They may have been, one possibility, just to get your thinking here, is they may have been chosen to represent ultimate evil. Because these two animals were the most feared animals of their time. The largest land animal that was absolutely ferocious and the largest sea creature. Untamable, uncapturable. We'll see when we get there. And there, but by the way, so you don't think, don't, don't jump to the trap as some commentators do, that these are mythical creatures of legend or something, that he's just dealing with figures of speech out of legends. No, God describes their diet, their physical strength, their habitat, their fierceness, and makes the point he made them the way they were. So it's clear from the text we're not talking about mythology here. Now some, of course, the behemoth has been characterized by some writers as a hippopotamus or an elephant or a rhinoceros. and uh, But all of these conjectures are very naive and are easily refuted by the text. And uh, fanciful attempts to render them to any current animals is ludicrous, actually. So I think what we'll do is uh, uh, just let the text speak to us and see what it says. Verse 16, God speaking. And by the way, realize we're dealing here with a direct quote from God. All through the scripture, you know, we have it secondhand. Isaiah will tell you what God said and what have you. Here, God is speaking directly. That's interesting. Lo now, his strength is... Oh, excuse me, verse 15. Behold now the behemoth, which I made with thee. I made with thee. See, he's putting at the same time that man was created, this creature was created. He eateth grass as an ox. Verse 16, Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. His sinews of his stones are wrapped together. I love that. His tail is a cedar. Have you ever examined the tail of a hippopotamus or an elephant? It ain't much. So it's a stringy little thing and hardly a cedar. Verse 18, His bones are as strong as pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach him. Chief of the ways of God. You know, that's quite a statement. And it certainly fits the mighty dinosaur. You obviously, uh, everything trembled before them. But I'm going to hint already that there may be more at issue here than the specific dinosaur. God may be using this idiomatically in a much broader sense as we'll discover Verse 20 continues, Surely the mountains bring forth, bring him forth food, whereas all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees, in the covert of the reed and the fens. The word fens is an old English word meaning swamps. And they are still there. It may surprise you that in, in the Congo and Zaire, there's a 55,000 square mile swamp. And they have continual reports there of dinosaurs and such. Still there. Not quite as large as some of the ones that we have found bones of. But uh, it's astonishing to discover 
a long list. We'll get to that in a minute here. Verse 22. The shady trees cover them, cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up a Jordan in his mouth. The Hebrew, by the way, it isn't the Jordan River. It's a Jordan in the Hebrew, meaning it's using that as a figure of speech in terms of just speaking of a large amount of rushing water. He can drink up a Jordan. You know, it's like saying he could drink up an Atlantic Ocean or something. It, it sort of is the expression. It's a, just a, a swift running stream that was familiar to them all. It was, it's, in other words, the term is there. It's used idiomatically. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierceth through the snares. What we're encountering here could be very reasonably described as some kind of super serpent. A giant, giant reptile. So one of the things that should trickle in the back of our minds is this might be the Nachash of Genesis chapter 3. Remember the whole story of Adam and Eve. Who came and deceived Eve was a serpent. But see, it was the word in the Hebrew is Nachash, the shining one. As a result of his deceiving Eve, Adam and Eve and getting the fall, he is condemned to, 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 uh, to uh, go on his belly, etc. What was he really? He was the shining one. That's what the term means. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about it as we go. We're now in chapter 41. Let's talk about the second creature, and then we'll stand back and talk a little bit about both of them. We've talked about this land animal. He's obviously a huge, dominant, and, and, and clearly it's a, the only thing that fits the case is a dinosaur. A real creature... Alive at that time, now considered extinct. And that's why people don't think of it or try to fit it because they don't think of dinosaurs as being actual. They were extinct millions and millions of years ago as, as the fiction gets promoted. Job chapter 41. Now we're going to talk about, having talked about the largest terrestrial animal, land animal, now God describes a kind of sea dragon which is translated from the Hebrew as the Leviathan. Now, some some writers think this refers to a crocodile. Well, <laughs> let me tell you, he's quite a crocodile. And uh, some say it's a whale. And for lots of reasons, if you examine the details, it doesn't fit. That becomes very obvious. Maybe it was a croc-a-whale or something. Anyway. <laughs> In Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, when we're going through the creation account, in verse 21 of the first chapter of the Bible, it says, God created the great whales, every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly, each after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. The word translated whales is the, Greek, is the Hebrew word tanin, which is in 20 other places in the Bible translated dragons or sea monsters or serpents. It's translated whales here, but it's a more generic term. You follow me? It doesn't mean, doesn't, not using, it's not speaking of whales denotatively. It's speaking of these large sea creatures or serpents. It's translated dragons. See, right away, you and I, when we hear the word dragon, we immediately, our minds go to mythology. Storybooks. We don't think of dragons as being real. That's because we haven't met one. <laughs> okay? See, <laughs> the text, the simple view, look at this is to say, okay, the text is referring to creatures that are now extinct. Except, I'd be 
misleading you if I left you with that impression because when you get into this area for people who've really studied the dinosaurs, you'll discover that they're not extinct. There's reports continually. We could go through two hours of slides of pictures and newspaper articles and articles out of Scientific American and other journals over the years of sightings by reputable people, groups of people seeing these creatures in places, sightings of dinosaur-like creatures all over the world, especially in places like the uh, uh, Lekuyala uh, uh, Swamp, which is uh, Zaire, Congo area, 55,000 square miles. That's a huge zone in the middle of Africa. And there's constantly uh, reports there of creatures that uh, you and I would describe as prehistoric. And if you would like, uh, I was originally going to try to show some of those slides, except uh, for lots of reasons I didn't want to derail the primary study, so I didn't bring the, the, uh, the, the equipment. But if you'd like, if you're interested in this area at all, I encourage you to contact Kent Hovind at, at uh, Creation Science Evangelism in Pensacola, Florida. His phone number is 850, area code, 479-3466. He also has a website called drdino.com. <laughs> and he's one of the most humorous, well-informed, fun guy. He's been a science t- uh, high school science teacher for 15 years, but he goes, he's in demand all over the world because he's, he's, he's the expert, but he has hundreds of pictures of these things that are fun. I'll just use one example. Do you realize in 1977, a group of Japanese, Japanese fishermen pulled up from 900 feet below the body of a giant pleosaur-like creature. It was 32 feet long and weighed 900 pounds. It was dead, obviously. It's just a carcass. It's almost bigger than the boat they had. So as they picked it up, they took lots of pictures and all of that, but what could they do with it? They ended up, ultimately, after recording it and taking samples and all that, they put it back. But those pictures are available. And uh, we'll put the pictures in the notes that accompany these tapes. But uh, and we'll put a number of the pictures in, in, in the notes that will be with the tapes. But what you and I are going to do now, let's just let the text speak to us. Let's set aside our prejudices and let's hear what the text says in, as, as God continues talking about this. He says, Canst thou, speaking to Job, Canst thou draw the Leviathan with, out with a hook? Or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant forever? In other words, can you catch this thing? Can you tame it? Can you make a pet out of it? Hardly. Will thou play with him? Verse 5. Play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons? Or his head with fish spears? See, this guy isn't catchable. This isn't something you mess around with. You go out there and catch one with a boat, you know. Lay thy hand upon him and remember the battle. Do no more. <laughs> Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whoever is under the whole of heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. 
Who can discover the face of his garment? Who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as a close seal. One is so near the other that no air can come between them. Boy, that's close. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. That's neither a crocodile nor a whale, incidentally. Not descriptive at all. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Well, let's just pause. It's clear that whether Leviathan is, he was impregnable and uh, totally uh, human efforts were insufficient to slay or capture him. And by the way, that can't be a zoo or a crocodile. You know why? Because the zoos are full of them. In fact, hunting them is so successful, they're, ex- they're considered uh, endangered species. This character ain't endangered in the traditional sense. Now, just about the time you say, gee, that's pretty good. That must be a dinosaur. Here, you check. That's pretty good. Then we get to verses 19, 20, and 21, and is, we get a curveball thrown here. Out of his mouth go burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals and a flame goeth out of his mouth. You've got to be kidding. The Bible talks about fire-breathing dinosaurs. Certainly this is mythology. Certainly this is just poetic license. Not so. Not so. Let me tell you something that most people don't know about dinosaurs unless you really get into it and talk about the scientists that are dealing with them. They're discovering dinosaur fossils that have been, uh, they've been excavated. They, some that they found, they show a large protuberance with an internal cavity in the top of the head. And uh, it's been suggested, we don't know what it was for, but we can only guess that it might have served as a mixing chamber for combustible gases that would ignite when exhaled in the presence of oxygen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on one 800 khouse one To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music